0: So Money episode seven seventeen Fran Hauser, author of The Myth of the Nice Girl. You're listening to So Money with award winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a thirty minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Are you a nice person and you feel this is an asset or a liability when it comes to climbing in your career or your business? Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. It may seem like an obvious answer. Of course, we're all nice. But here's the issue. If you're too nice at work, do you run the risk of some people maybe not taking you seriously, walking all over you, thinking that you're weak? But on the other hand, if you're not nice, if you're unkind, if you're rude, it might sometimes work to your advantage, but it's not really a way to build a good reputation. I mean, how can people really respect you? Our guest today is gonna get to the bottom of all of this. She's got some solutions. We're hearing from Fran Hauser, who is tackling this issue head on with her new book, The Myth of the Nice Girl, Achieving a Career You Love Without Becoming a Person You Hate. The book is out tomorrow and teaches how women... And everyone can lead with kindness and strength. Fran, who was the first person in her family to graduate from college, has held leadership roles at some of the biggest media companies. Most notably, she helped grow People.com from 3 million to 30 million unique monthly visitors. She's now a venture capitalist who's on a mission to help female founded companies grow and thrive. Here's Fran Hauser. Fran Hauser, welcome to So Money my friend and congratulations on your latest, well your newest and and soon to be one of many books I predict.
1: Thank you for, I'm
0: so happy to be doing this with you today. I remember talking to you about this book when it was still just in your head, uh, you had written actually a story for Forbes, I believe. They had picked you to kind of share a perspective. It was uh, maybe it was International Women's Day or something around that um, that theme, and you chose to, wrote a, to, to write about how to be nice at work and still succeed. And this is something that was very personal to you. It ended up going viral. This piece. I I probably am abbreviating the story too much, but I wanted to just set the the context for the audience for this book and and really share just how explosive this idea is. Although in your life, it was such a simple concept, but so many women struggle with having with their identity at work. Why do you think that something so simple is so hard to grasp?
1: Yeah, I think it's um, obviously this is something that you know, I've been thinking about for a really long time. I started thinking about this actually back in 2009 when I was president of digital for people magazine. And, you know, I mentor a lot of young women and I love mentoring. And the question that I've been asked the most often is how can you be so nice and still be successful? And it is such a simple concept and it's a, but yet it's a concept that is really difficult for people to grasp because when, when we picture what a successful leader looks like, we often think of someone who's smart and tough and has really high expectations, you know, is competitive, but we don't picture somebody, um, who's kind and, I think for me in in my own career, it really has been my superpower. And I, I think it's been, you know, one of the main reasons why I've been able to, um, you know, continue to be whether it was when I was a time, Inc. you know, continue to be promoted into bigger and bigger roles, um, or frankly, even transition, you know, into investing, angel investing, which is what I'm doing now. And um, I think for me, it's really about this idea of of kindness and strength not being mutually exclusive. You know, I think that the most effective leaders lead with both, and I think that when you're kind um, and and when you're nice, what that allows you to do is build relationships. And at the end of the day, like business is all about relationships, right? It's about it's about influencing people, and it's about getting the best out of your team. And it's it's, it's about having really um, difficult conversations in a, in a way that's productive. And I think that when you're nice, it just makes all of that stuff so much easier to do. And it, it naturally leads to, um, to success in, in your career.
0: It makes a lot of sense. But to your point, we do think that being nice and, quote unquote, tough – Are um, mutually exclusive, and if we could maybe even break it down to a scenario at work and how some of the rules in your book can come into play. For example, trying to negotiate a a salary for yourself, whether it's the you know your first time at the at the job, you haven't even gotten the job yet, or you're at the job and you want to get promoted. Uh, We often hear that you have to sort of go in and be aggressive and persistent and. Certainly, you know, have data and be armed with knowledge, and not necessarily play your to your emotions, not show your emotions. How can you be nice and aggressive and tough at the same time in that in that particular scenario?
1: Yeah, I think the um the the, actually the being nice part when you're negotiating a raise is it is really around empathy, and it's around. Um, first of all, putting yourself in the other person's shoes and really understanding where they're coming from. Most likely this is your boss. Um, And, you know, understanding the the bigger picture context of what's going on at the company, Um, you know, what the company's goals are, how you, how you fit into those goals, how you create value. Um, And, and i think a lot of that really is about empathy it's really about stepping like out of yourself and 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 thinking about your 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 boss and thinking about the bigger picture um and it's also the energy and the attitude that you bring with you you know into the conversation because i think when you're positive and when you have a really good energy and you're you're coming from a place of um you know, uh, of a really kind of, of a good, good intention and kind intention, it makes the other person want to do right by you. Um, so I, I think, I think attitude and energy are very important. I think the strength part, um, is, is really around confidence and feeling first of all, really valuing yourself because I think we have a tendency to undervalue ourselves, but really being confident about what you bring to the table and being armed with that data of knowing, like what other people who do a similar job, what they make, it could be peers at other companies. It could be data that you've gotten from, you know, recruiter friends. I always say, like, you want to go out to coffee or lunch with recruiters two or three times a year, you know, just to really kind of stay on the pulse of the market and and market rates. Um, so I think being armed with with that data gives you gives you a lot of strength. And I think the other thing too, is that, you know, when you're negotiating and I always encourage women to not wait until the annual performance review to ask for a raise, but to do it, you know, out of cycle. So it could be three months before or six months before, because what that does is even if you get a no, you're setting the expectation that you are expecting a raise, so that when it comes time for the annual performance review, your boss knows like going into it that, okay, you know, she's, she's expecting to get more than like the two or three of living adjustments. So, you know, I need to be prepared. I need to be prepared for that. Um, So so I do think that there's a way to do it where you're bringing both kindness and 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 strength to it. I think if you go in like, you know, a bull in a china shop, it just (laughs) work, you know, whether you're negotiating your salary or you're negotiating anything like it just there's this thing called the a-hole tax that I love talking about, where like if you're negotiating and you're with someone and you're really rude and you're you know, you're bullying and you're not you're not being nice. You're going to end up paying a tax in Mm -hmm. some way you know, because you're just, you're, you're really off-putting to the other person and you're not focusing on developing a relationship with them and understanding what's important to them.
0: Absolutely. Word travels fast in business, like in any place in life. And if, if you burn a bridge or you rub someone the wrong way at your job, that, you know, that can come back to haunt you in in so many ways. Yes, it can, it, it can come back to haunt you within that
1: negotiation. It's itself right Mm -hmm. where um and then you're right it can also come back to haunt you if you have to deal with this person down the road or with you know somebody who you know who this person knows so absolutely
0: um this is a hard question i've been getting recently maybe you can help me navigate this for for listeners so you know with all the me too and time's up discussions and movement which i'm so excited about uh we're increasingly hearing about women finding out at work that they're making less than their male counterparts. We know this is nothing new, but for the first time, we sort of feel like it's our responsibility to now talk about this publicly. But how do you do that when you're at work and you want to make more as a woman and you have somehow discovered that your male counterpart is is making more? Before, maybe a year ago, I would have said – uh, maybe that's not something appropriate to bring up. Instead, you know, d- double down on the fact that you're a high performer, what you've been bringing to the table, how you've been improving the bottom line. You know, also market trends. Yeah. But but uh, if you have an advocate in HR who's like, "Hey, Fran, I heard that a uh, Joe is making more than you," and I can ac- and actually shows it to you, I don't, just don't know what's the protocol these days and what's okay.
1: Yeah. I I actually think it's really important, you know, if you find out that Joe is making more than you, I think the first thing that you need to do is really look at what each of you bring to the table um, in terms of, you know, you have to be honest with yourself about experience. For example, like, do you have the same number of years of experience, um, you know, and and are the roles truly peer? roles, I think you have to start with just a really honest assessment of like, is this an apples to apples comparison? Um, and if it is, and by the way, like whether it's a man or a woman, um, if, if you feel like you're bringing the same number of years of experience, you're bringing the same skill sets, you're, you know, you, you're, really are in a, a peer role, um, I think it's it's really critical that you approach your boss about it. And I don't know if you have to make it about the whole like male-female thing. I think it's just really more about, you know, this person is my peer. We're bringing the same experience and qualifications to the table, yet they're making 30% more than me. And, you know, I have to tell you, I had someone on my team when I was at Time Inc. who... She came to me and said, um, you know, look, I've been talking to my to friends of mine who do the same job that I do, have the same number of years of experience at other media companies, and they're making 20% more than I make. And for Noosh, I had to listen to that. You know, as as her boss, like, that's a really important data point. And I was able to go to HR and say, look, this is what, you know, this person is is telling me. You know, can can we do our own kind of analysis? And um, comp assessment, and we did end up giving her. We did end up giving her more. So, mm-hmm. but I, I do think to start with a really honest assessment, right? It can't just be like, yeah. you know, yeah, I was making thirty. It's you really. What, well, what if he has fifteen years more experience than you have? You know, so so I think it, that I think that's where it starts. And then absolutely, whether it's a man or a woman, it's it's perfect. That, that's the data that you want to have the conversation.
0: Fran, you've worked in media for a very long time and now in venture capital and now you're uh, just, uh, you know, you're an author. And I, I know that you also talk in your book about how in the beginning you learned a lot by making mistakes. What was the biggest mistake you made that you're so grateful for that uh, perhaps is even something that you talk about in the book as as a real lesson and um, something that you'd like to pass on to the new generation?
1: Yes. I think it's such a great question. And and um, I have to tell you, it was something I really struggled with when I was first starting to write the book. You know, I remember we submitted chapter one and the feedback that I got from my editors was that um, it was way too research heavy and it was way too focused on shining the light on other women. And I wasn't being vulnerable enough and I wasn't sharing enough of my own personal stories, um, and especially stories where I had those learning moments and, and I made mistakes. And once I started doing that in the book, it just, it made the book so much stronger and I think so much more relatable. So so I share a lot of those moments in the book. And one that comes to mind that I think was really, um, pivotal for me was when I was at Time Inc and I was working on InStyle's digital business we were launching a new product called Stylefind, Find. Um, and it was basically an e-commerce site um, for fashion and beauty that was curated by InStyle editors. And as we were launching the website, we were having such a hard time coming up with the consumer value proposition um, from the standpoint of, like, how would I, as a consumer of the website, communicate it to my best friend. So it's like, I, I'll never forget when when Uber launched. I remember being in my office and a colleague walked into my office and said, have you tried Uber? And I said, no, what's Uber? And she said, oh, it's car service on demand. And it was just such a like, simple way to clearly articulate what the value proposition was. And then I told a million of my friends about Uber we had such a hard time coming up with that statement for style find. I mean, I remember being in these meetings, 20 people, editors, business people, marketing people. Um, and it was, it was like this, um, terrible feeling in the pit of my stomach that we were, we were really struggling with it, but I sort of ignored it. I did ignore it actually. And we did end up launching the product and it was not a success. Um, and we ended up shutting it down, which is always a really hard decision after you put so much, you know, of your time and energy and passion and financial resources into something. Um, we did end up shutting it down. And when we did our post mortem, that was really the, the 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 thing, the key thing that we all talked about was there was there was this sign. There was the sign that, you know, that there wasn't this unique value proposition, and we all chose to ignore that. And I think now, like as an investor, I'm investing in startups. It is something that I, it's like one of the first questions that I ask founders when they're pitching me is, what is that unique value proposition that will make the product go viral? You know, that that a consumer can, um, can communicate to, to, to his or her friends. Um, So it's, it was such a valuable lesson and it's, it's something that's, you know, even more helpful to me today as an investor, because it's kind of, it's one of like the three or four top things that I look for when I'm deciding whether to make an investment or not. It was still really painful, like going through it at the time. Um, You know, obviously it was, it was a big bet that the company placed and I was, you know, really one of the two or three, I I would say key people um, so it was very difficult. But what came out of it was this just enormous aha moment and and learning um, that has just been really helpful to me, you know, since then.
0: You were the first woman or person, actually, in your family to go to college, and I did know this about you. You were born in Italy, or maybe I forgot. That's that, you have a very cool background, and I just would love to explore your childhood a little bit. We do this with guests often on the show because I think so much of who we become is rooted in our upbringing, and it's no, it's it's a no, it's not rocket science that that is the correlation, but particularly with our perspectives around money and work, what do you think it was about your upbringing that made you who you are in terms of your career drivenness and your financial savvy? I'm assuming you're financially savvy, by the way.
1: <laughs> I would say I am. <laughs> um, you know, I had such
0: a, I had such an interesting childhood because
1: my parents were um, immigrants. You know, I'm I'm actually an immigrant myself. My parents moved to Mount Kisco, which is a a suburb outside of New York City, when I was two. And my parents, you know, both were small business owners. Um, My father was a stonemason and landscaper, and my mother had a tailoring business. And, you know, I just, I have so much admiration and respect for both of them because they built these businesses truly without speaking a word. And um, I really ended up being the general manager, you know, for both of these businesses at a very young age. I mean, I was in first grade and I was doing all the invoicing for my dad's business. And, you know, I I remember like I couldn't multiply yet, but I had to calculate. um, I had to calculate sales tax, (laughs) which back then I think was 5.75%. I don't know why I remember this. And I actually... Um, my aunt actually created on a piece of paper she wrote out um like a hundred dollars and then that the tax would be five dollars and seventy five cents so that I can just like pull the amount from this piece of paper as opposed to multiplying so this is literally you know it was such a big part of my upbringing because i I had to you know not only help my parents with their businesses but also like if anything you know, broke in the house and like we had to call, you know, a plumber, we had to call an electrician. Like I was the person who was making the phone call. Um, so I grew up really watching my parents, um, despite the fact that they had this communication barrier, they built these incredibly successful businesses. And it was, a lot of it was through hard work. A lot of it was through Um, They were both very kind people and very charming. And think about it. They both had clientele, right? So like my father had, you know, very wealthy um, people who were his clients who, um, you know, hired him to build a stone wall or to, you know, do the landscaping. And same thing for my mother. So their kindness really shone through. but, But I also saw an immense amount of strength in both of them where they kind of had this like velvet glove, you know, where... They, they were very kind, but they were also very direct and firm when they needed to be. Um, and I just, I think the thing that I really treasure in, in terms of, you know, being their, their child was just seeing how, how difficult it was for them. You know, they had no help. I'm the oldest of four. Like, I'll never forget, like my mother, like taking us to the grocery store, you know, all four of us. And like, how did she do that? Like, I, I don't even like, I was like wow. six. Four and two and an infant, and she figured out a way to to, to do it. And, and when you you know growing up and watching them just like persevere, and they were so incredibly loving and generous, and still really like so popular in our community. We we have about I think we have over a thousand people now that have em- that emigrated from the same town in Italy in in Calabria, the tip of the boot, that all emigrated to Mount Kisco. And so we have this huge Italian community in Mount Kisco. And, you know, I really, they're, my parents are like still like, they're, they're like very popular and very well liked. And um, they have this huge community and support group and friends. Um, so I feel like I learned so much from them about being scrappy, about being resourceful, about hard work. You know, when I went to college, I mean, I had no network. I had no mentors. Um, you know, I was watching like my friends whose parents were investment bankers who had access to all these incredible people who could be helpful to them. Like I didn't have that. I really had to do it on my own. Um, and my father, you know, had a first grade education and my mother had a third grade education. Um, so, you know, I think, I owe everything to them. I mean, I I really do like everything, and just the values that I learned from them. Just it it just of course it's what you said. It shaped who I who I am today.
0: Do you sort of feel like I feel this way because my parents are also immigrants and came here and really were just they they started with nothing essentially, and I feel like their child. I I have no other choice but to work hard and. And be successful enough so that I can make them proud and feel like, you know what? It was worth it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, yeah. I Failure is not an option.
1: Failure is not an option. Long-term after, failure, yeah.
0: You're right. Like after everything that they did
1: for us, right? I mean, imagine how hard it was for them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, just and, – and, di- and they did it for their family. They, they wanted their, their family. They wanted me and my sister and my brothers to have a, a better life. And um, so, yeah, I, I definitely feel – the sense of, you know, gosh, if, if they could do it, like, we should be able to do it.
0: Absolutely. Uh, this question comes to us from our sponsor, Chase Slate, and it's a fun question. It's what is a big ticket item friend that you are saving up for currently?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. Um, you know, I, I'm really, I feel like the older I get, the more I appreciate experiences um, as opposed to like tangible, tangible products. So, um, you know, I, I really love the idea of doing a, um, a big, like kind of like African safari, um, with the kids. I mean, they're still young, they're, you know, kindergarten and second grade. Um, but it's something that I, they both love animals and I would love to be able to, to give that to them. And to share that experience with them, my, my husband actually took his mother, um, who's in her 80s on an African safari uh, last summer. And it was so special and it was such a great bonding experience for them. Um, so I think that's something we would love to do with the kids.
0: Mm. An African safari, that's, that's very ambitious. I can't, my kids are too young right now. I could never, I can't even take them to the grocery store. I'm not as brave as your mother with four children to the grocery the store. I,
1: I know, I can, barely, I can barely take two. It's like,
0: <laughs> it's called fresh select, you know? <laughs> right, right. Bring it to me. What is, what is your so money moment in all of your years working? Uh, certainly this book and its launch is so money, but i I suppose, like, what is also an example of a time in your career where you felt like you applied a lot of the advice in your book and it really paid off financially?
1: Yeah, I think, so I think, you know, the first moment that I I can recall is when I was leaving Coca-Cola to go to Movie Phone, And, you know, I was leaving one of the world's most admired companies to go to this early stage startup that, like, not very many people had heard of. Um, and that was really the first time that I negotiated, um, because movie phone made an offer and I went back to Coca-Cola and said, look, I'm taking this job. And Coke came back with a counter offer. Um, and then I went back to movie phone and said, you know, Coke came back with this counter offer and then movie phone gave me more. And it's weird because I feel like that negotiation almost happened accidentally, right? Because I got, I got the counter offer from Coke. Otherwise, I don't know if I would have even negotiated. But I think in that moment, it really, um, showed me kind of what my value is and that I, that I was really undervaluing myself that, you know, with movie phone, I I would have taken that first offer if Coke hadn't countered and from that moment on, you know, every single time that, um, now that I, that I, that I'm negotiating compensation, I think back to that. Um, and I think that there's, there's always an opportunity to ask for more. Um, you know, the, the worst that they can say is no. And, and you might not get what you want on the salary side, but maybe you can negotiate another lever, you know, it might be about flexibility or working from home, or maybe there's like a side hustle that you want to continue working on or, Whatever it is, right? You, you can look at compensation more broadly, but I think that was a really important moment for me because it was like, "Huh, I don't think I would have negotiated, but because Coke countered, I did, and I, and I did end up getting a, a you know a much stronger compensation package out of it."
0: And one of your tips is sometimes when you don't get the compensation you want, there are other ways to look at the perks and the benefits, right? That don't just stop at the numbers, but look at yeah. other ways that you can leave with a, a win. What are some examples?
1: That's right. You know, I think it could be anything from, well, it's it's kind of whatever's important to you in that moment. But, you know, if you really care about education, it might be tuition reimbursement. Um, if if you are really interested in working on a side hustle or a side project, you know, it might be getting permission, you know, to to do that. Um, It could be, you know, working from home. Um, You know, it could be I I have a a couple of friends. Actually, this was so random that it happened at the same time, but they were both leaving a, a corporate job in November and they were taking they were taking on a new role. And I asked them, like, what are you doing about your bonus? Because you're leaving your bonus on the table. Like, it's November. They were 11 months in, but they would have to stay until April to actually get their bonus. Um, and they said, you know, I really hadn't thought about that. And I said, you should ask for a sign-on bonus, you know, from the new company, because you're leaving this bonus behind. And they both asked, and they both got it. But they they, they just didn't think to ask, right? And um, so I think really dissecting, like, every single... Every single thing that you could ask for um, is important. It's not just about
0: the salary, um, right? Absolutely. And sometimes it means sharing your plans with someone you trust, like a confidant at work or a mentor. Say, hey, I want to go in for this ask. Uh, Any advice for me? And because one of the things that you say in your book is that it's important to practice with a friend because... Uh, well, A, you get really comfortable and more relaxed at it, hopefully more rehearsed. But sometimes your friend can identify like what you're forgetting to ask for, how to ask. And sure. uh, that when we advocate on behalf of someone else, you know, it tends to be um, – we're better negotiators. So almost pretend like you're not you. We're bringing a friend to sort of think for you in some ways that maybe that you're, you're so focused on the numbers or you kind of forget all the other benefits. <laughs>
1: Well, it's so true. Like I feel like, you know, if you're negotiating on behalf of your best friend, right? You can so clearly see how amazing they are and the value that they that they add. And if you just sort of aim that same mindset towards yourself and try to see yourself in like a really kind of objective way, um it, it it's so helpful to do that. It really is because it is like studies have shown women in particular, do a better job of negotiating on behalf of someone else. And it goes back to, we undervalue ourselves. Um, so I think that is really important. And your point about practicing is everything because then like the whole role playing part and, and thinking through, this is kind of like sales 101, like really thinking through what are the objections going to be? What, what are you, what are you going to hear as an objection? And then if you're prepared to respond to that, you're going to go in with so much more confidence.
0: All right, Fran, let's do some so many fill in the blanks. (laughs) This is a way to wrap up the show. I uh, start a sentence and then you finish it. Okay. All right. Okay. So if I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say $100 or in this recent case, and I don't know if I think it was in New York, $400 million, (laughs) the first thing I would do is I would create
1: a foundation that's focused on women and girls and and empowerment.
0: I feel like you're going to start that anyway.
1: You think so? I, I think so. so. I think that's, that's in your future. But you know what? There's something about having 400 million dollars <laughs> that um, <laughs> it. I mean, God, that would be like that would go a long way,
0: right, in terms mm-hmm. of empowerment. So yeah, and uh, expeditious. Uh, launch <laughs> much faster. Yes,
1: exactly. That's definitely an accelerant. It's definitely an accelerant.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is getting blowouts. <laughs> okay, so uh, this is actually this episode is airing ahead of your launch soon soon before your launch of your book, but as we are f- recording this week Fran, I'm telling you just because I want you to get take advantage of this. Dry Bar is offering free blowouts between 11 and 2 p.m. every day this week, and so you better book your appointment. It's um, in partnership yeah. with like Netflix and some <laughs> <day>. things. So <gasps> that is so good. No, so if you have it, yeah. So just Thanks. maybe not this week, but I'm sure this is going to be something that they'll do again this year. So just keep your eye out. I'll be there Friday <laughs> at 1115. Um, <laughs> all right. One thing I love to splurge on is. Shoes. That's yeah. like the easiest
1: one. <laughs> I love my shoes. Actually, when I was at Time Inc., I had a um, a closet in my office. That was just filled with, um, you know, designer. Whether it was Jimmy Choo or Manolo Blahnik, Louis Vuitton, um, because I'd always like to wear like comfortable shoes, like walking, you know, walking to work. Oh, that's but smart. Then beautiful shoes to choose from, and then to they never it.
0: get destroyed because you're not you wearing them in New York City on the pavement. Exactly. Oh, that's smart. Exactly. That's right. You've already talked a little bit about your philanthropy pursuits, but when you do donate now. I like to donate to blank because I I like to donate to
1: causes um, that are very specifically directed. I like local. I like grassroots. Like I really like to know, which is why I love global giving, by the way, because there are like over a thousand grassroots projects. I want to know like exactly where the money is going. I I really love transparency. I want to know that it's going to like these 12 girls, you know, in, in this one country, Um, that, you know, are having a specific issue. So I think that's really important to me, specificity and transparency.
0: It is a good lesson for anyone starting a a philanthropic venture or nonprofit that that is, yeah, I can't agree with you more. I mean, I went during, say, the hurricanes in um, Houston, the flooding and the devastation in the aftermath, you know, I... I chose – one of the organizations I gave to was the Houston Food Bank because they would tell you that for every, say, $5 or $10, you were going to feed X many people. And that is a no-brainer. At that point, you're like, well, here. Here's like 10 times that because you actually see how far your dollar goes and what they're doing with it. It's, it, it actually encouraged Absolutely. me to give more. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree.
1: I, that is so, so important to me. And I think for me too, like, I really like having a budget. Like I do actually set, um, a budget when I, I go into like the new year, um, in terms of, you know, how much over the course of the next year I'd like to allocate, um, to, to nonprofits. And because it is something that's so important to me and I want to make sure that I'm really intentional Mm -hmm. about it. Um, and that I build it in, build the budget
0: Yeah. Budgeting for your f- forgiving—that's. We actually had a guest on the other day. His—he uh, had a code. It's Dr. Habib Siddiqui. He's a uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's doctor. Okay, we get really fancy on the show, uh, but he said that he ha- has always had this code. It says ten, ten, eighty, and that's how he divides up his money all the time. It's ten percent, just give it away. Ten percent, keep it. Eighty percent, you know, live your life with it. Um, it's, it's a good baseline, you know, and then from there, hopefully you can do better like 20, 20, 60 or something, you know, uh, if you want to maybe save a little bit more, give back more, but, um, to make it a, a absolute part of your budget every year is, uh, is a really amazing place to be in. It's a great place to be able to do that.
1: All right. And I think, you know, even with the kids, oh, are you there?
0: No, no, no. Yeah. Keep going. I lost you just for a
1: second. Oh. Oh, no, I was, I was just going to say, like, even with our kids, like, we really love to kind of talk to them about, you know, exactly what you said, the whole, like, saving, living and um, giving back and really just encouraging them to, like, think about, you know, even with their allowance, right? Like, to, to think about it that way. And I think it's something that it's just so wonderful to instill that in your children at a, at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not just focused on money as, like, you know, spending it and, and you know, buying toys. Um, But there's so much more that you can that you can do with it and so much more value you can create in the world. Right. From an impact perspective.
0: Right. It just there was actually one parent who shared that uh, they make philanthropic decisions as a family together. And the kids are they're tasked with coming to the family meeting with with their causes and they have to make a case. And then they ultimately just pick like one or two. But, you know, you have to kind of come to the table and advocate for something. And it's it's great.
1: Oh, I love
0: that. I'm going to steal that idea. Yeah, go ahead. It. Everybody can steal that idea. Good. And last but not least, I'm Fran Hauser. I'm so money because because I
1: value kindness as much as I value strength when it comes to leading. And um, and I see that um, the amazing effect and and impact of that. You know, not only at work and with my team, but also on the world at large.
0: I'm so excited for the myth of the nice girl. I know that this is a long time coming for you, and I do think you're going to empower so many women. Thank you so much for your work, Fran. Thank you, Franush. Thank you so much for your support. I can't tell you how much it means to me. To learn more about Fran's upcoming book, check out franhauser.com slash nice girl. You can also follow her on Twitter at Fran underscore Hauser. That's H-A-U-S-E-R. And she is on Instagram with the same handle, Fran underscore Hauser. All this info is back at somoneypodcast.com. If you missed any of it, the transcript the audio. You can also click on Ask Farnoosh at the top right. Send me your question in for the Friday episodes. And if you'd like to co-host, that is also where you can reach me. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Stay nice out there. And I hope your day is so money.